entered the Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietley. Messages. We have messages. Can you believe the amount of traffic on the forums in the last few days, Gene? I think it's got to a point here that we're going to have to hire board monitors or system <laughs> operators, as they call it, in the trade to help out. You know, really, because if we spend 24 hours a day keeping track of this, it's not enough. Day and night at the wee hours of the morning, and you and I are sometimes up at the wee hours of the morning, people are posting messages. It's really exciting. Well, we've been getting a lot of exposure on Above Top Secret. Our friends over there have uh, done great getting our name out into the uh, into the field. And apparently, uh, <laughs> my name is often taken in vain on other shows. So I think people up in Canada, for example, have been sending us emails, and I suspect they heard uh, they heard a nutcase mention my name more than a few times and tracked us down, found the show, and started participating and started writing into the forum. So I think we're seeing a bunch of that as well, Gene. People are starting to take notice of the Paracast because at this point, it seems like we're some of the only people having lucid conversations about these perplexing topics. You know, instead of being believers, we're asking hard questions, and I think that's making people take notice of us. Indeed. On Monday, the 20th of February, we had record visitors on the Paracast forums and on the site more than any other time and it just keeps getting bigger every week it's incredible I don't know that we expected any of this certainly you hope that when you do something that hits the public arena at a time when not everybody is doing as well as they should look at the satellite radio networks they have to merge because yeah. they probably sink if they didn't well we're doing a lot better than I could have possibly expected doesn't mean that we're rolling in money or anything like that. That's not the point. We have an audience. We have a growing audience where every single day the number of page views, when people say hits on websites, it means nothing. It's page views where people look at a page on our website or on our message forums. That's what we count. And we're getting tens of thousands every day. It's just incredible, the numbers. And more and more people visiting our message forums. And what this tells me is that there are lots and lots of people out there who are curious about the paranormal and and they're looking for a place to get accurate information. And there should be a lot of people providing it. Unfortunately, some people don't. Mm. They just take any claim with full acceptance. They fawn over guests with the most ridiculous claims. They even mention poor David Bietney in vain. Now, what did David ever do to these people? Nothing, but they come on the air and they attack David. Now, of course, in show business, if you spell someone's name right, that's all you need. So that's David all you is need. becoming famous uh, by becoming infamous, I guess. But what are you infamous <laughs> for, David? What did they have against you? Well, expressing honest uh, opinions. I mean, basically, I don't want to mention his name. I don't want to say his name. And it's not Hugh should not be named. It's his evil twin, his diametric opposite, or so we thought. His greatest challenger has now decided uh, that I'm his biggest enemy. So I've got, you know, we've got on one end the Billy Meyer people, and on the other end, we've got their biggest enemy. Now, both of these camps now think that I am some satanic creature, that 
somehow I'm out, you know, I'm I'm out to take them down. Well, as far as the Billy Myers stuff, you know, we know that it's nonsense, and I know we've said we're not going to talk about it on the show. But at this point, as we've spoken about, there's no way we want to give that topic more credibility because it doesn't deserve it. There was a message on the forums by by someone who said, "Well, you guys don't talk about this. What about people who want to know about it? Yeah, you know, what about them? Let them go and do their research on the web and find all of the incredible amount of material that underscores the fact that that case is a total hoax. But now because of the fact that that case's greatest enemy contacted me and a few other people that we know and you and wanted to get our research, wanted to get the work that we had done because this guy is is going after them in some big way, as if that's even necessary at this point. I sent this guy emails saying, well, wait a minute, you know, what are you going to do with our material? What are you out to accomplish with this? And uh, the fact that I questioned this guy, this guy who's such a serious nutcase that he makes the Meyer people look normal. I mean, it's just terrifying how screwed up some of these people are. And the fact that I said to him, I'm not going to cooperate because I don't think you're, you have credibility. He just went out of his mind. And he's been on this Canadian paranormal radio show, a truly terrible, terrible show. And he, he's on there. This character is on this show every Thursday night. There, I said it. And uh, he spends an hour every week just basically trashing me, trashing Royce Myers, our good buddy, trashing Paul Kimball. And it's like, what is this guy doing? Well, it's become pretty clear this guy is completely off his rocker. Let me tell you something. And I'm not going to read you all the things he has in his message forums. And sometimes you okay. know by uh, the people yeah. what they offer. Now, this particular person <laughs> has a website, which is not going to be named. Mm-hmm. He has a message form, just like we do, except that there is a slight difference between oh, our man. message forums and his. And I'll give you a couple of them. Some of these I can't even mention on the air. The no, topics, you don't want to. That's I'll just right. mention one of them here, which is <laughs> Jessica Simpson featured videos, photos, yeah. and articles. Now, what does that yeah. have to do with David Biedney? I don't know, but I like it. I do you just... know much about you health, spelled H-E-L-T-H, yeehaw. Yeehaw. Okay, that's yeah. it. Well, and finally, well, finally, one more. I can't let okay, this go. Okay, go ahead. Okay. The next level of enhancement formulas. <laughs> Maybe he thought it was enhancing his mind so he could no. think better? No, the guy basically is ignoring his, his discussion forums and message bots are taking it over. And he's not even aware of this. He's not aware it's even going on because he's so out to lunch. point of this, of course, Gene, is that it seems like this field, the paranormal field, is so extremely polarized that either you are a hardcore believer or you are Randy. You're the amazing Randy or you're Billy Meyer. Just like no in-between. or There seems to be very little in-between. And I, that's the function that we perform in this whole situation. We are becoming, I think, in many ways, the centrist voice. The great paranormal middle class. Well, I'd like to think we're better than, than that. Uh, I'd like to think that we are participating in the idea of creating rational discourse and discussion. You know, we're, we're talking about what is potentially the most important stuff in our 
history. We're talking about what might even be the source of a lot of our history. How can we not take these topics seriously, Gene? To me, these are topics that deserve some serious discussion. Look, we both know that there are going to be cranks and nutcases talking about these things. It seems to attract that kind of people. The minute you talk about UFOs, I mean, look at what happens in the mass media around the O'Hare situation. The mass media starts reporting on it. What do we hear immediately within a sentence or two, or two of UFOs were seen at O'Hare? What do the little green men want from Chicago? Are they here for the cigars, for the beef? It's like there's this, this tendency on the part of the media to always interject. Not the deep dish pizza? No. <laughs> no, I I'm mean, sorry. No, I couldn't resist the, that. Well, there I you understand. go. See? Sure. Yeah, there you go. I mean, it's so easy to make fun of this stuff. Well, you know, I don't then, mind laughing at ourselves. I think sure, it's a good idea. Sure. But all they do is the same tired humor. Okay, yeah. the little green men are landing. You know, is Mr. Spock coming down to Earth? You know, whatever it is, it's the same stuff they were talking about in the 1950s. Right. It's all this right. happy talk garbage that passes for news on television. You know, the same people who decided to hire Katie Couric. I criticized somebody on TV to be the anchor CBS. This is imagine Walter Cronkite watching Katie Couric and said, this is my yeah. one of my yeah. successors that yeah. I worked 50 years as a journalist, and this is what they end up with? Well, it's not surprising, Gene, to see that the media treats this topic this way. In the last couple of weeks, there had been a thing on Fox News about the O'Hare situation, actually. And they had on Bill Nye, the science guy, and David Sarita. Now, we've had David Sarita on the show before. I thought we had actually a decent discussion with him. I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception, because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car. A sleep timer. An alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting our site, theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com right now. Click on the C-Crane Sponsor button to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free C-Crane catalog. Place your order today. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. 
tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. I'll tell you what, let me just tell our listeners you're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. And we're talking about the state of the paranormal once again because it's become one of the most active discussions in our message forums. And we understand that and we're trying to be the voice of credibility. So we have, of course, David Sarita, who we had a very nice relationship with on our yeah. show. I thought he was yeah. very pleasant. Absolutely. And I talked to him off the air. We exchanged email. Really nice. But as time goes by, you find out what people are really about. And um, in the last couple of weeks, there have been all of this activity on Above Top Secret. This guy gets on by the name of Michael Lee Hill, and he creates a couple of threads on there saying, I have the most incredible UFO footage shot over Lake Erie. Look at these things. Look at these lights. Look, I've now, got- I just want to shortcut this. We did mention yeah. some of this last week, so I just want to summarize it real quickly. Go ahead. Oh, okay. What ended up happening on this Fox show is that David Sarita was representing the voice of the ufologist. Basically, he was claiming that that the the O'Hare incident was genuine. It had to be because he saw a UFO when he was eight years old. So those were genuine UFOs. I don't know what the connection is between those things. Well, maybe he Um, thought it was the same UFO, came back to see how, (laughs) see whether the planes were getting off on time because, you know, the airlines oversell, they overbook, and they were investigating overbooking by airlines. That's why the aliens came to O'Hare. Well, yeah, right. Anyway, I mean, you know, at this point, what the guy has done, and we're not going to mention the name of his upcoming film. I don't want to do any promo for this guy, because essentially what he's got is a, a, I don't want to call it a documentary because that gives it too much credibility. If you go and you look at the trailer for this nightmare he's working on, what you find out is that he claims, he claims, Gene, that he has engineered a zero-point energy device He claims he has engineered an anti-gravity engine. He claims that he is going to build a spaceship and go to Andromeda. He's not going to choose a closer star system. Oh, no. He's not going to go to the star system that has the planet, which has uh, oceans made of chocolate and multidimensional nymphomaniacs. No, he's not going to go there. He's, he's not going to go to Vulcan. No. Not to Vulcan. That's right, because that's okay. still in our galaxy. No, he's gonna, not to Zeta Reticuli. Nope. That's still in our galaxy. Nope, nope. He's going 2.2 million light years away to Andromeda because he's completely lost his mind. And here's the thing. When this guy puts himself forward as the serious voice of ufology, and by the way, his trailer begins, I am now a famous ufologist. It's like, what, what, what is that? What kind of crazy ego trip is this guy on? And how in God's name does that help anyone get any closer to the truth of what the UFO phenomenon is about? It doesn't. It's basically a distraction. It's noise. It's a terrible hit on credibility of the field, whatever little credibility there is. And this is the kind of guy who Fox calls up to be on television. The problem is also the media doesn't know 
this line of distinction. To them, Stanton Friedman, David Sarita, and Sean David Morton are one of the same. They are people who believe in this stuff. They don't understand the distinctions. Obviously, the distinctions even between various and sundry belief systems about the origin of UFOs from really sane, serious people. You know, if we take, for example, Mac Tonys and Stan Friedman in the same room, they have different points of view, but they are sane, logical, sensible, honest people. They don't understand any of this. To them, they're all in the same bucket. Well, yeah, they're all basically UFO heads, and they're all laughable. And, you know, I can now feel a little bit of the pain that Stan Freeman's got to feel when he goes out there trying to be credible, and people compare him to a David Sarita. And actually, I've read some quotes from Freeman saying, God, this guy, Sarita, is just what we don't need in the field. And, you know, Stan is a nuclear physicist. I can understand how frustrated he is when you've got David Sarita now claiming to be a new age physicist. He's a scientist. It's like, no, you're not a scientist. You don't have anything in you that in any way addresses the most basic tenets of the scientific method. Sorry, you're a believer. And in my discussions offline, uh, via emails with Sarita, at one point I, I, I hit him hard. I said, look, you know, this is like nonsense what you're promoting. He said, well, you must be a government operative. You're an NSA guy, and you're trying to reduce my visibility and credibility. That's it. And this is what you see in Above Top Secret, Gene. The minute you question the believers, quote-unquote, now you're a government operative. And it's this is us versus uh, them conspiracy theory. And therefore, there's no middle ground of, well, some UFO cases are real, some aren't. As a matter of fact, I think the most sensible people in this field will say very specifically that probably 90, 95 percent, 98 percent of all the sightings reported are conventional things. They could be regular planes, meteorites, whatever. Conventional. It's only that 2 to 5 or 10 percent. So most of it is not real. So, but you can't have this black and white viewpoint of the UFO field. It is either a spaceship from Zeta Reticuli or Andromeda, or it's nothing. And if you don't believe that, you represent the government. Now, I have to tell you that I am the anti-agent as much as David Bietney is. We never served in the military. Okay, we didn't serve in the military, you know, secretly or or not. I mean, if we're going to talk about people who might be secret agents, look at James W. Mosley. He's the son of somebody who was very well known, very well known figure in the U.S. Army during World War Two. He had a position of authority, as a matter of fact, in the government. So this is the son of that man. Therefore, he's got to be an agent. No, he was basically a a beatnik in the 50s. That's what they called Mm -hmm. him then. You know, Mm -hmm. he was kind of or kind of a hippie. That's that's really what he is. Probably rebelled against his father, if anything. Absolutely. I've seen letters. I'll tell you, I've known Jim Mosley for over 40 years. This ages me, but I knew him very young when I was just born. Seriously. And Jim, through the 50s and 60s, was thought by some to be a government agent. But I saw letters from his father trying to Mm -hmm. straighten him out from his father to his mother. They got divorced when he was very young, and he was brought up by his mother, trying to straighten out Jim, suggesting he go to a military school, stuff like that. I don't think Jim is going to really be concerned over revealing this stuff. But Jim was the kind of the white sheep, you know. 
He was the yeah. exception, and yeah. he went off and did his own thing, and that's the way he is, and that's what I like about him, the anti-government agent once again. But this is what's so unfortunate about the UFO field. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. This is yeah. the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. I don't want to say, though, that we're just sitting here saying, ain't it awful? Okay, I don't want to play the ain't it awful game because I think a lot of good information is out there. And it's not the truth is out there like they said on the X-Files. I mean, there's a lot of solid information out there, a lot of incredible experiences. I think if you go into almost any family around the world, any family, somebody's going to say, I saw a ghost. Or mm -hmm. my grandmother talked to her dead sister, or I saw some strange lights in the sky. This is a common factor. We are all part of the human family, and lots of us have shared these experiences. Maybe not me, but there are people in my family who have had these experiences. And, you know, David's mentioned a few of them here, and I think if we work hard enough, we'll get him to reveal a few more things. But... You know, a lot of things are out there. And I think that's why most people believe that we're being visited by spaceships, if that's what they are. They believe in life after death. And I think the fact that a lot of people in the media trivialize this means they're trivializing experiences that millions and millions of people have had. And that's really sad. And we're well, hoping yeah. here to kind of show a little bit of light on this whole subject. We have to realize, Gene, that the mainstream media trivializes a lot of things that have real deep impact on our lives uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. When voices were coming out before the terrible Iraqi episode, us going in there, a lot of voices in the media or that had media exposure were saying, look, if we go in there, this potentially is going to bankrupt our country. This is going to have terrible ramifications on our ability to be a significant force in the world. And the mainstream media trivialized those voices. Well, now we know that that's exactly what has happened. In fact, we don't really know the extent to which that damage has been wrought. I mean, we, we won't know for years. The media has trivialized so many aspects of the illegal actions of the current administration. So, you know, when we talk about the media at this point, Gene, as far as the mainstream media goes, not only, not only do I take it with a grain of salt, but I've, like many other people, I've turned to the Internet and to independent forms of media as my main news source at, at this point. I mean, look, if you, want, if you want access to the news, go read the Associated Press feed. Don't take what the talking heads on the nightly news give you as reality. They take the AP Newswire stuff, and they boil it down to two or three sentences. I used to work, by the way, as a newscaster on a radio station, several radio mm -hmm. stations when I was very young. And now understand, these people who work for the major networks get paid a lot more money than I got. But they have right. writers who sit there, and what do they do? Well, yes, they do originate their own stories, but a lot of the networks have cut back on staff. So what they do is take the AP story or Reuters story, and they take 
the 20 paragraph story. They distill it to two or three paragraphs and read it. And that's supposed to give you a full picture of what's going on in this world. So what you're getting is somebody's version reinterpreted by two or three other editors with all the basic facts distilled to a few talking points. And that's supposed to be what really happened. At this point, the complexity of the world is not served properly by this concatenation of thought. I I was going to talk about it in the last show, Gene, but let's talk about it right now. Recently, I went to a local meeting here in Westchester, New York, of um, people interested in the topic of UFOs. It happened at a public library. Um, It was on a Wednesday. They meet the first Wednesday of every month. A very nice group of people. Uh, I don't think they're related to MUFON or anything, though. I think MUFON, maybe uh, they're in some way working off of a MUFON database. I'm not sure. But I went to this meeting, and um, these people were gathered. There was about maybe 25 people. And they had actually gathered to watch the documentary Fast Walkers, which I don't know that we've really talked about on the show. Actually, we're going to mention it a little bit in our next segment when we talk about the Phoenix Lights. One of our guests, Dr. Lynn Kitai, is involved in the debut of this movie in Phoenix. It's coming up. Mm -hmm. So she'll be mentioning it. And that's going to be on the second part of the Paracast. And Dr. Lynn, by the way, is just a wonderful lady. I think you'll enjoy hearing from her and Sean Castile part two of the Paracast. Excellent. So you were saying, my friend. I went to this meeting, and um, at first I didn't identify myself. I just walked into this little conference room, and these people were talking. And you know me, Gene. I I tend to take over the conversation very often when I'm in a group of people. Mm. Yeah, I just sort of do it. That's part of what my personality is. I just, you know, I feel like I have something to offer. And what ended up happening was I got into a really interesting discussion and debate with some of the members of this group. And it was happening, you know, in the whole room. Everybody was contributing to the conversation. But but here's one of the main points I want to make about this was that somebody asked me a question, and I was getting ready to give an answer, and there was an older gentleman to the, to the left of me that piped up and said, could you give us the Reader's Digest version of the answer? And I turned to him and I said, you know, that's the problem here. The problem is that we're dealing with a topic of such complexity, with such nuances, such, such detailed nuances and subtleties, that this idea of reducing it to just a few sentences, the idea that you can have a Reader's Digest version of an answer, I said to him, that's your problem. There is no Reader's Digest version of the answer. This is complicated stuff we're talking about. You don't get to have a simplified version because we're not talking about simple stuff. And this is what happens with the mainstream media, Gene. They take, for example, the complexities of what's going on just in Iraq. How many news shows talk about the realities of the Sunni-Shia-Kurd dynamic? The fact that, you know, this is going on there, that it's not just Iraqis we're talking about, no. We're talking about this incredibly complicated situation where you've got these factions of the Islam faith that are at war with each other. And what we've done is essentially to just completely destabilize the region and give Iran, this very big country, and to anybody who is not familiar with the layout of countries in the Middle East, go grab uh, Google Earth and go look at the countries we're talking about. You start to get a sense for what's really going on. I'll tell you, while, while people are getting out their Google Maps, yeah, okay, or their printed world atlas. Yeah. 
Fate magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. And we're talking about the state of paranormal research, the state of the world, and sometimes they're one and the same or might be. Okay, David, well, let's have your geology lesson. No, it's not even that, Gene. It's, um, a, it's the state sure. of the media, the state okay. of, the, of the fact that at this point, the media is not serving the interests of the average person. I really believe that strongly. I believe that the media has become, in many ways, one of the greatest evils in our society because of the fact that it promotes simplified thinking. It promotes emotional responses. It essentially has become a primary tool of brainwashing and disinformation. And the way that the media trivializes paranormal topics, reducing it to nothing more than entertainment, it's a disgrace. We're talking about some of the most mystical aspects of human experience. And to have them be reduced to not only sound bites, but nothing more than sort of gauche entertainment, I, I don't think very highly of this, Gene. I mean, it's true that these topics are odd. It's certainly reasonable to think that people would approach this stuff, any of these topics, with a, a good degree of skepticism. I would hope that would be the case. But to, to trivialize this stuff so that it's... It's laughable the minute you mention these topics, so people snicker. Well, that doesn't really serve any purpose. That just distracts us away from any real understanding of what we are. I'm not going to turn to organized religion at this point, Gene, the way the media would have us do, and look for human meaning in that. That, to me, again, we're talking about mechanisms of control. I don't buy into this now at this point in my life, Gene. Unfortunately... I want to think for myself, and this is, um, when I say unfortunately, it seems like that is no longer the norm. That's the exception now. If you want to think by yourself, if you want to think with your own mind, if you want to be truly analytical and as objective as possible, and look, hey, it's impossible for, for us to be completely objective. We're subjective beings, and that's fine. You know, you have to have some understanding of what you are in order to see where you're going. So I don't have a problem with that. It's... This idea that you you can't think for yourself, you have to take what someone else gives you and use that as your foundation. It's an easy thing to do, but does it actually tell you about the true nature of reality? 
I don't think so. You know, it's the other issue I think that's of such concern is how do we find the truth anymore? Do we go online and look at 10,000 different versions of the story? Yeah. Do we check out the Drudge Report and get whatever <laughs> Matt Drudge decides to emphasize on his site? And just looking at the Drudge Report right now, other than Anna Nicole Smith and this judge in Florida who's trying to tell us that he's really a stand-up comedian at night. Mm. <laughs> That's a good question, sir. I don't know um, I don't know how we can cut through the noise. I'll give you the most important it. story of the day okay here it is ladies and gentlemen from the drudge report as of the time that the show is being taped report britney back in rehab all caps bold type that's it nothing else makes any sense at all that is what our society is all about anna nicole smith whether she should be buried in the bahamas or in texas and who was the father of her child it looks like half of america has come forth saying that they have fathered anna nicole smith's child which leads me to believe what kind of sex life did this woman have that so many candidates can emerge as a possible father around a certain time frame which can be probably pinpointed within one or two days so i don't know what's going on i really don't think it's anything i really want to deal with Brittany back in rehab after getting a haircut oh please this is what our society is ladies and gentlemen well this is what aspects of our society indulge um this is what some amount of our society is distracted with not all of us are gene some of us do not live in front of a television set that's an increasingly small number i mean i only got broadcast television again this last summer, I didn't have broadcast TV for 10 years, and now that I have it, I barely watch it, man. I turn it on, I watch it for an hour, I get absolutely stunned by the level of crap and noise and manipulation that's out there. I just can't watch it, and I turn it off. And so, at this point, I don't even watch the sci-fi channel much. Uh, they haven't put Ghost Hunters back on, so I don't really care. I'm not watching... You're not into Battlestar Galactica? It's a really no. good show. Uh, I know. That's what you've told me. A number of other people have told me. But, no, I, I've, I've rediscovered books, man. You know, reading is a really great thing. And I'd rather play my guitar at this point. I, I'd rather make something and consume something. So I wanted to thank kind of, you, by the way, publicly for this great logo that he did for the Paracast website. I mean, kind of wacky, it's almost right? hypnotic. Yeah, really. it's like just a little, little play on a Tesla ball there, a little uh, plasma ball. Yeah, kind of, uh, it was fun. I used some uh, wacky Mac software to do that, but yeah, I'm glad you like it. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to look at the logo at theparacast.com. Listen slowly and carefully to the sound of my voice. You'll be falling into it. Now, forget it. I used to hypnotize kids. When I was 18 or 19, I, in my neighborhood back in Brooklyn, New York, I went in there and I hypnotized people. With one end, what were you doing? (laughs) What was I doing? Yeah, what were you doing? Were you hypnotizing girls, you said? No, I will. I don't know about that. Well, I can talk about one instance, but I'd rather not. So what I did, though, I'll tell you, this is a true story. It's a family show, man. It's a family show. So I I didn't do anything that would violate any family considerations, okay? This is Uh all All G-rated. It's not even PG. It's G-rated. Some... Guy comes in there, and he's smoking like a pig. He's 18 years old. So I hypnotized him, and I gave him a post-hypnotic suggestion that any time he tried to smoke, it would leave a bad taste in his mouth. Mm -hmm. And I assure you, with 
within a few days, he hadn't been smoking. But you know what happened? Of course, the hypnotic suggestion, a post-hypnotic suggestion, only lasts for a short time. So his friends kept saying, you sure you don't want to smoke? You sure you don't want to smoke? You sure you really don't want to smoke? Here, take a cigarette, take a cigarette. So for two solid weeks, they urged upon him, <laughs> smoke, please smoke, please smoke the cigarette. They just intimidated him to a fairly well. So what did he do? He became a smoker again. Uh, it's not my fault, ladies and gentlemen. Well, two weeks is not bad. No, I think that was pretty good. I think it could have continued if they had just shut their mouths, but they wouldn't do it. They had mm. to say, hey, we'll induce him to smoke again. That guy Steinberg doesn't know what he's doing, which may be true, of course, because imagine a 19-year-old trying to hypnotize people. And, you know, I think I did very well. I hypnotized a few people, a couple of girls, a couple of guys. Nothing there mm -hmm. went on that was not uh -huh. G-rated. Sorry about that. Mm -hmm. I didn't have the nerve. I was yeah, not that you're willing to share, in other words. <laughs> Wouldn't you like to know? Well, I'll tell you what. Yeah. I'll exchange one of my experiences for one of your paranormal experiences that you have not revealed yet. Well, I was going to say, I have some other experiences, but that's a whole other show. I don't think we're going to do that show. Although, I don't know. Now that Sirius and XM Radio are merging, we're going to have Opie and Anthony and Howard Stern working on the same network. Maybe you and I should do a, a counterpoint show mm. to show you know, how well, it's going to be done, how to really do great radio. Yeah, I don't think I think Opie and Anthony are going to be out of a job. I'm guessing that they're not. I, if this if this merger really happens, I know that our listeners are probably thinking, okay, what are these guys talking about? We want to hear about ghosts and things that go bump in the night. They don't want to hear this stuff. But it's going to be a bloodbath if that happens. I don't think that. Uh, well, either Opie and Anthony are going to go. Or maybe there's going to be a reevaluation of the half a billion dollars being paid to Howard Stern. Well, I suspect uh, they've got poison pills in there, and that yeah. if they were to get rid of him, it still would cost them $500 million, and yeah. Howard wouldn't care. Yeah, probably not. It's amazing, you know, the amount of money they pay that guy and for what. But that's, a, again, that's a whole other show. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we're talking shop once again, and I think a lot of it was inspired by the messages you folks posted in our message boards at theparacast.com. So if you click on the discussion forums link, it takes you there. By the way, in the second part of the show, we'll have Sean Castile and Dr. Lynn Kitai talking about the Phoenix Lights, seen first March 13th, 1997. March 13th was my brother's birthday, by the way. And I think he died the year before the Phoenix Lights. So I don't want to suggest that when no. the Phoenix Lights occurred, yeah. it was my brother coming back to yeah, seek his revenge. I doubt that. No, I doubt. Now, you didn't see these things, did you? That's another story, and I think I'll tell it on this side, because Dr. Lin has so many great things to tell, because she saw things before there were Phoenix Lights. She was seeing things. And she's, by the way, is not a kind of some kind of fake doctor or something. She's a medical doctor, a family doctor. She's mm. one of the few people still doing family practice. 
some more power to her. So the point is she's a real legitimate doctor, not somebody who bought a degree at the degree store. During those years, I was writing lots and lots of computer books. I wrote over 30 books telling you how to use Mac OS 10, how to use Mac OS 9, how to use AOL, why anybody would want to know how to use AOL. But I was doing that, and I was working day and night writing these books. So when the Phoenix Lights appeared, what was I doing? Understand somebody who had seen and read UFO stories, had seen everybody in creation talking about the subject, had edited magazines, talked about it on the air. I was sitting there writing books mm-hmm. on technology while people in Phoenix were seeing UFOs. So now everybody's going to dump on me and say, how could you be so stupid? Well, well didn't I, know. I didn't. I really do? didn't know. And I think with UFOs, it's kind of a love-hate relationship a lot of us have, where we say, you know what, I've had enough of this nonsense. I'm going to disappear for a few years. And you do, and something happens, and you say, wait a minute, maybe I'm going to come back, and maybe I'm going to talk about it again, because maybe there's hope this time that we'll learn something more about the subject, that we will learn really what's going on. Mm-hmm. Hey, you know what I would like to do, and while we're talking, of course, we always talk about the forums. I know a lot of you people have not visited our message forums on theparacast.com, but we have polls, and we have it set up so anybody who attends the forum and becomes a member, and becoming a member means you just give us a username and your email address, and you know we're not going to inundate you with spam or anything like that. It's just something that allows us to keep the forums organized and to keep a few people who want to start trouble away. Anyway, I created a poll called the Ultimate UFO Poll, Subtitled, What Do You Think UFOs Really Are? And I think it's important now for me, without mentioning numbers, just percentages, which is really important. And that is what our listeners think about the origin of UFOs. Now, the prevailing wisdom, of course, is that they are extraterrestrial travelers, okay? Yeah. So here's what the poll says. 19.15% extraterrestrial travelers. 8.51% interdimensional travelers. 4.26% time travelers, 4.26% strange consistent number there, earth-based secret weapons, Hmm. and just ordinary stuff, 2.13%. So basically, the ET experience or theory is only slightly ahead of that. But matching the ET theory is another answer that I added, which is I have no idea, 19.15%. That's good. And the next category was the first five options together, which is extraterrestrial travelers, interdimensional travelers, time travelers, Earth-based secret weapons, just ordinary stuff, 40.43%. Most people think it's a combination. I added one more to that which probably makes it unfair, crypto-terrestrials, a civilization coexisting with ours, so far 2.13%. The same as ordinary stuff, so people don't really accept that. The point being here is that ETH is not a universal belief. I think a lot of the people, at least the people who visit our forums, are willing to accept other answers about UFOs. And that's encouraging. I think it's really encouraging that people are willing to listen to people like Alan Greenfield and Mac Tonys. And people have different points of view and are willing to express those points of view and go out and endure the heat. Well, when it comes right down to it, Gene, we don't know what these things are. I mean, we really don't know. 
And this is one of the things that happened um, on Above Top Secret when this guy Michael Lee Hill kept saying, these lights I videotaped, these are extraterrestrials, these are aliens. And I admonished him right on the forums. I said, well, how do you know that? You keep saying that, but you don't know that. Even if you and a, I, I, what I did was I said, look, here's the thing. You're with a hundred other people and you see a disc in the air and you see it fly up out of sight. You see it hovering in front of you for X number of minutes and it flies away. How do you know what it is? You say it's extraterrestrial. How do you know? Is it crypto-terrestrial? How do you know? Is it an interdimensional creature? What leads you to believe that? The thing is that even if you, if you see these things flying off into the atmosphere, well, how do you really know what they are, Gene? And, and this is something that I was talking about with my lovely girlfriend just the other evening. Like, what, what is really going on here? And what occurred to me is that maybe, indeed, it is a combination of all of the above. Maybe we've got an alien civilization that came to this planet a few million years ago, established an outpost here, and you've got aliens now living on the Earth for millions of years, interacting with human civilizations over this period of history, perhaps affecting human evolution in some way, and their craft allow them to move between dimensions and by definition time travel. Maybe that's what's really going on. Maybe we've got a situation where we've been colonized and we don't really know it. That's entirely possible. It's just as possible we are the colonists and we forgot about it. Well, that's that's possible too. All of these things are possible. And that's the what I think we need to get to the bottom of with this whole discussion is that we don't really know what's going on. So what we have to do, the task really is to try to figure out what it's not. What are these things we don't we don't know? We're not sure. So what aren't they? Let's take away potential sources for these things. Let's eliminate them. And by doing that, at least we can hone down the field. At least we can, again, maybe not figure out exactly what they are, but let's figure out what they're not. And then once we do that, then we're simply getting a little bit closer to the truth. Now, I understand when we do something like that, maybe mm -hmm. we're not debating quite as much as to who the men in black might be and whether they're extraterrestrials, government agents, or some combination of both. We're not talking yet about whether we did have an alien exchange program. We're talking about what the heck are these things, and let's not assume anything at this point. No assumptions, right. folks, because if we start assuming things, we're back in the same area as we were when Major Donald Kehoe wrote the book Flying Saucers from Outer Space in the early 1950s. Now, that meant, of course, that Major Donald Kehoe, who at that point was the the man when it came to UFOs. He yeah. was the guy, and he was a nice guy. I met him in the latter part of his life several times, and I have to tell you, he was a very nice, pleasant guy, really. Mm -hmm. you know, a short, thin, reedy kind of guy, and from Iowa, and he had this very deep Midwestern kind of hick Midwestern accent. I interviewed him a couple of times. I didn't agree with what he said, but he was a very nice guy. So let's separate Major Donald Kehoe was a nice guy, but he stopped thinking about what UFOs are right at the very beginning when he was writing for True Magazine, writing his first book. He said, well, they can't be ours. Therefore, they are from outer space. End of story. That's oh. it. And unfortunately, too many people have followed the same footsteps okay they've they traveled his path and say okay 
we couldn't have done it, so they have to be spaceships. And this is, of course, true of the media. The media is not going to look at this and say, well, maybe they're from other dimensions. Maybe they coexist with us. Maybe they are time travelers. That, to them, is a concept that is too sophisticated, and they want to simplify and dumb down the news. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. This is the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, and we are talking about the state of paranormal research. And it's a subject that we started last week, and it has generated possibly more comments on our message forums than ever because I think a lot of you are concerned about where it's going, about the fact that you're disgusted with it, about some of the things that happen, for example, in the UFO field. And we're not the only ones. There is one very famous talk show host out there, and sometimes we laugh about the show, but I know Art Bell has said he's kind of fed up with UFO research, too. I'll grant him that. I agree that far. I'm kind of fed up with it, but I have more hopes than he does because I am not going to do anything to make it worse or try not to. David and I really want to see this thing get off dead center, keep the discussions going in a sensible fashion. And when people have brand new ideas, and I think we need some new ideas, we're not going to say, no, you can't express that doesn't fit with my particular point of view, because that's not the point. The point is, if you have something that you can express in a logical fashion, you have something with which to back it up, we will give you your chance, indeed. And we might not agree, and we're very possibly going to debate these points, but yeah, let's look at all reality tunnels and see which ones potentially can teach us something. Because that's the thing, Gene, uh, and I want to say this publicly, we haven't talked about the fact that you and I have never claimed to be UFO or paranormal investigators. This is something I'm getting more and more of uh, in emails and private communications. Uh, There's been some public discussion about this that, you know, how dare we say that we're investigators or researchers. And it's... um, Clearly spelled out on my bio on the Paracast.com main page, I state that I am a student of all things paranormal. I think that's a reasonable stance to take. I don't claim to be an expert in any of this. Certainly don't. I'm an expert in Photoshop. I'm not an expert in paranormal stuff. I don't think there is any such thing, quite frankly. When I hear the term UFO expert, I think, okay, uh, what are your qualifications? 
you have a degree from a university that ufology is there a degree yeah. in ufology i think was it temple university has courses in that isn't that what dr jacobs told us Where a few jacobs months back? Uh, teaches i think yeah well that's all great and fine but i don't think there's a degree program and, and by the way even if there was what's the curriculum based on you know science fiction of the last hundred years bottom line is this the studies um, of major donald kehoe do we give them yeah, copies yeah. of his books do we give the collected works of stan friedman what do we give them kevin randall yeah, jacques well, valet no rich actually richard dolan's book the, the ufo in the state of the security state that would be the book to read or the Larry Warren book on Bentwaters. That would be a really interesting book to read. You know, that, having mentioned that, we get requests by email sometimes, sometimes in the boards, what are your recommended titles? And I go along with you about those two. Mm-hmm. I think those are great beginner's books or just experienced researchers or enthusiast books because they tell you a lot of what's going on, what's happened in the UFO field, but they're not going to necessarily draw you to one conclusion or another because that's not the first step. The first step is not to reach a conclusion. The first step is to be acquainted with what's going on. Right. The history of the field, as it were. Right. Now, another book I would recommend about the history of the field, and a lot of people will disagree with me, but it is a wonderful story about the UFO culture. It's called Shockingly Close to the Truth. That's, of course, from my friend Jim Mosley. Now, mm-hmm. it's not because my name is mentioned a few times in that book, because frankly speaking, my name is mentioned in other books that I wrote myself. His book didn't sell a lot of copies, but go to Amazon Books, place your order for a copy of Shockingly Close to the Truth. It won't give you the truth about UFOs, but it'll give you something that's just as important. It'll give you a picture about the people who get caught up in this field, why they do, and maybe then you'll understand the cultural phenomenon too because it may be just as important as the reality of UFOs. So that's my recommendation. That's not bad. There is a thread on the forum that discusses our picks for important books, and any of the listeners out there who have specific ideas or recommendations, please feel free to get up on Paracast.com forums and post your recommendations. I think people are looking for decent titles to read and there's so much junk out there and it's so hard to cut through the noise and to find decent books that you know if you've read a book and you think it really is outstanding and it is as objective as any of these books can be please post those titles on our forums we'd really appreciate it and your viewpoint may not be the same as others in fact there was a thread opened up a couple of days ago not about books but about magazines Hmm. What is your favorite magazine, the 40 in Times? We've invited the 40 in Times over here a couple of times. They haven't given us a yes answer yet, so we'll hold that in abeyance. But I've seen the magazine. It's a very good magazine. Fate magazine magazine has been around since the late 1940s, and we had the current publisher, Phyllis Galdi, on our show a few months back. Now, Fate magazine is not a publication where you get a point of view. It's almost like a reader's digest of the paranormal where you have short to the point stories about strange events. And so you'll learn about what's going on. It's not necessarily going to be the place where you'll get some answers, but you'll find out about the events and a lot of the people who you hear on the show right there. So it might be a good place to go. Mm -hmm. 
Mufon Journal certainly has a lot of information about sightings, collections of sightings. Of course, UFO Magazine from our friend William Burns and Nancy Burns, and that's also a good compendium of points of view. David has a column there, and I'm not recommending UFO Magazine because they advertise or because David has a column because that's only something of recent vintage. It's just a good place to get some information. Now, a lot of points of view will be expressed there, and those points of view may not be what you agree with, but it's it's one starting point. It's also difficult to find things on the newsstand. So we know Fate Magazine is on the newsstand. UFO Magazine is on some newsstands. There are some other ones like Atlantis Rising, which is on the newsstand. Well, I, I, I haven't seen that one. No, and I haven't yet really formed an opinion about it, but certainly it's there. Atlantis Rising, yes. Oh, it seems boy. to be a book that focuses on a lot on, of course, the ancient astronaut theories, stuff like that. Certainly mm-hmm. the legends of ancient civilizations, which are quite fascinating. I think we ought to do oh, yeah. more of that, talk about ancient mysteries. And we've had several guests on there, like uh, Brian Houghton, who wrote a new book that just came out about some of the ancient mysteries, Klaus Stona. We have to get him back on. I've got so many questions for him. He sent you some material, didn't he? He sent me this great catalog um, from that big exhibit that he had mounted. And it's freaking me out because it's, it's in German, and I can't understand it. It's like this wonderful book with photographs of all of these strange artifacts and a tremendous amount of background information. I only wish that there was an English edition. A beautiful book they put together, Gene. I mean, it looks better than a lot of commercial books I've seen for sale. So it's the catalog of the exhibition. We're not just left-wing Kool-Aid drinkers, as some might want to call us. We're just trying to honestly understand what's going on. If that takes us to a left-of-center posture, well, so be it. In the second part of this episode, the Paracast, we'll be talking, of course, to Sean Castillo, who writes for UFO Magazine and lots of other places, and he's doing a story about the Phoenix Lights coming out shortly. And also, Dr. Lynn Kitai. Dr. Lin is a real medical doctor who has seen UFOs and concludes we're not alone, by the way, and also is very much involved and caught up in the story of the Phoenix Lights. This is the 10th anniversary year of the Phoenix Lights, one of the most interesting sightings in recent history. We'll learn about that in the next part of the Paracast. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. Sean Castile, I understand that there's going to be a special cover story in the March issue of UFO Magazine covering the 10th anniversary of the Phoenix Lights. Can you tell us something about that? Yeah, we actually, we've been working on it for the last couple of months. Uh, we, we think it's a hugely important event, and uh, the 10-year ten, the anniversary of that hugely important event is, is also uh, equally important. So, yeah, we're, we're treating the story very carefully. We've done uh, several uh, interviews and uh, the, the covers, uh, you know, and design and so forth, so we're, we're really looking forward to it. Now, looking at this event in perspective, Sean, where does it stand in relation to all the thousands of UFO cases that have come to light since the modern UFO era began? Well, 
some reason, this case is so different and so important because it was seen by so many people simultaneously. It happened on uh, March 13, 1997. Uh, there were thousands of witnesses all across the state of Arizona, and it was, the, uh, the lights were attested to by commercial pilots, air traffic controllers. They were captured on video, which is another factor that makes it very important. It, it, it happened in an era, in a time, when, when so many people have their own video cameras. So it's literally possible for them to dash inside, grab their, grab their camera, and start photographing the sky. But yeah, it's one of the all-time classic cases, and, and uh, you know, it, it, it's one of those cases uh, that so far has proved inexhaustible, meaning that we, we haven't be, even begun to uh, dig out all the information that, that's available there. Mm. Any of these photos that came to the fore, stills or movies, any of them withstand any serious analysis? Oh, sure, sure. They've, they've been subjected to all kinds of analysis. Uh, Jim Delatoso is, is one of the people best known for doing that. And it's easy enough to, uh, you can't only prove it's, uh, it's an alien spacecraft, but you, you can prove that it's not certain things. You can prove that it's not flares. You can prove that it's not landing lights from an airplane. I mean, the sheer scope of the event just, just, uh, just blows away any kind of prosaic explanation like that. Question about these photos and the video footage. Was there video taking taken from multiple vantage points to oh, allow? Sure. So, so well. Here's the question, though: Did anybody try to create an analysis that formulated a triangulation to be able to understand the scale and specific shape of the thing that contained the lights? Because I know that lights were seen, but presumably these lights were part of another structure, or is that incorrect? Well, to answer the question about uh, triangulation, I, when I interviewed uh, Jim Delatoso uh, last month, he told me that indeed uh, Bruce McAbee had done that. He'd taken mm -hmm. videos from, from different perspectives and triangul triangulated them and synchronized them and everything. Right. So yes, it has been done. So um, what do we know about the actual scale of the craft then, well, or whatever the object you know, was? There's a researcher named uh, William Hamilton who, who was a, uh, a big investigator of this back in 97 when it first happened. Mm -hmm. And he felt compelled to uh, coin the term VLOs for very large objects. And they, they were huge. Some people said they were as big as a football field. Some people said they, they were as much as a, as a mile long. The, the sheer size of it is, is just, it's just mind-boggling. You know, the lights appear to be you know, attached to some kind of structure. And, and when that structure flies over, it blocks out the stars behind. Behind him. So you have, you're able to to see a kind of silhouette, this huge form up in the sky with these lights. Um, it's just, it's just, it was just breathtaking to behold, I understand. Well, okay, so we have it over that one piece of footage that I've seen that where you have it clearly over Phoenix proper. Where else was it seen in the state that evening? Don't know. You might want to ask uh, Lynn about that. Uh, okay. I, I do know that it was seen beyond Phoenix in, in other parts of the state, but I don't exactly know the, the town's names off the top of my head. That's okay. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietany. We have two guests on right now talking about the 10th anniversary of the Phoenix Lights. We have have Sean Castile, a writer on UFOs and the paranormal. We also have a new friend of ours, Dr. Lynn. That's Dr. Lynn Kitai, and she's author of a book called The Phoenix Lights, and she saw them just before anybody else did, and she'll tell us about that in a moment. David, you were saying? Well, actually, maybe this question is, um, is best for Dr. Kitai. I'm wondering about if anybody was able to take various sightings of this thing and create a trajectory for exactly where it moved, what was the nature of its movement 
that evening. Are you asking? <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, let me, okay, let me jump in here. Uh, first of all, thank you for, for getting the uh, the information out there about this, uh, this mass sighting. There is so much more to this story than March 13, 1997, but just to set the record straight, and I do hope people will pick up the book, The Phoenix Lights of Skeptics Discovery, that we are not alone, because I go into great detail, and, and Bill Hamilton as well had a book out, uh, which went into even more detail on exactly what occurred here throughout the state. Uh, it actually, the first call came in from a, a retired police officer in Paulden, Arizona, about 8 o'clock. Uh, however, since I came forward three years ago, after staying anonymous for seven years, I have received dozens of emails from people who had actually been seeing these things prior to our sighting here, both in New Mexico and in Nevada. But the first call in Arizona came in from a retired police officer in Paulden, Arizona, who saw this mile to two mile wide um, formation of lights. And, and, and let's be clear on what was happening that night. Uh, on March 13, 1997, it was a very clear, quiet evening. Thousands of people were outside purposely to look up at the sky at the, the Hale-Bopp Comet. It was very clear in the northwest sky when they also witnessed uh, this mile to two mile wide, uh, some reports have said, from very credible sources, formations of lights that seemed to be attached to something, but they couldn't quite see what it was attached to. So other people did see a craft. Uh, some people saw windows of this craft and gunmetal on the bottom. But nonetheless, it, it traversed the entire state over many hours. It, it happened to be, it seems like there was a parade actually going throughout the state because some people, whether it was perception or it was actually different objects, some people saw a V-shape, some people saw a boomerang shape, some people saw a triangle. But nonetheless, it was, it was witnessed by thousands of people actually coming down the most populated corridor of Arizona. And yes, this has been laid out quite, quite extensively by Jim Delatoso and Michael Tanner um, from all the witness reports. Uh, and we also have it in a documentary to show people how it came down the, the most populated corridor of Arizona down towards uh, Tucson and then turn around, turned around and from the witness reports came back to Phoenix about 10 o'clock that night. Now, we're talking a half-hour span. Going back to your original question, did anybody triangulate this? I actually uh, got a geologist to come to each person from ASU, Arizona State University. I went to extreme lengths to find a logical explanation for this thing. And um, when he came to each person's house and realized that the handful of videos that actually turned up from that night, it's not that anybody else didn't try to take pictures, because all through the state, I have reports from people who tried to take pictures, but it was so dark and blocked out the stars, these pictures just didn't turn out. But the pictures right. were about a half hour period from about a quarter to 10 to, to about 20 after 10 from four different uh, vantage points that we had. Um, once the geologist came to each of our homes and realized that each one was taken at a different time, he said quite clearly that no one can triangulate exactly where this thing was around 10 o'clock. Okay? So that's number one. What Dr. Bruce McAdee did, and, and he's a dear friend, and I really respect his, his expertise, and I actually presented uh, my close sighting, which was two years prior to the mass sighting, uh, where I also got pictures at the MUFON International Symposium in 1999 in Washington, D.C. as true unknowns. He actually came after another sighting that we had a year later, and he tried to triangulate that sighting. No one can triangulate the 10 o'clock sighting from 1997. So, you know, that that's number one. Number two, there were so many people throughout the state that were affected very, very uh, deeply at a very deep level.
travel from this from this sighting itself. And uh, to this day, they're still coming forward. In fact, I, I turned uh, Sean on to a, a, a commercial pilot who just got in touch with me this past year, um, who was flying uh, near Vegas and saw this thing um, around 10:30, 11. Say. We're going to talk about the pilot when we got a chance. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. Here's an offer for your listener. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-UFO-MAGA, or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com. And they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAGA. And they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. This is the Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen next. Let me tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietendi, and we're talking to Dr. Lynn, Dr. Lynn Kitai, author of The Phoenix Lights, and Sean Castile, a writer on UFOs and the Paranormal, and he has an article coming in the March issue of UFO Magazine on the Phoenix Lights. Now, you was about to say, Sean? Well, I, I, didn't want to, I want to interrupt Lynn, but I did want to mention that we interviewed the pilot she's talking about for, for the uh, upcoming uh, magazine, and uh, the woman was uh, our captain with Southwest Airlines traveling from Phoenix to San Francisco that night on March 13th. And uh, she said that they were just south of Peach Springs, which is uh, to the east of the Kingman area. And it's a navigational aid that uh, they use as pilots. So she was explaining to me that they were at 33,000 feet. And then when you're that high, you can see the whole southwest region. Mm-hmm. So, so if you look off to your left, for instance, you see Palm Springs and Los Angeles. You can see lights along the Colorado River and so forth. So from her perspective in the sky, she thought she saw the lights over Las Vegas, seven really 
bright light. And she at first thought they were uh, landing lights. And then uh, she radios Los Angeles Flight Control Center to see if they know what's going on. And this was a very interesting part of what she had to say. Um, she said, when you fly into different sectors and you talk to different air traffic controllers, you, you know their voices. I mean, they, they become familiar with one another's voices. So she's talking to this guy she knows, and uh, he says there's nothing on his screen. Meanwhile, there's a continental jet about 100 miles to the east of, of her plane that was apparently seeing the same light. She could hear the guy on the radio saying, oh, my God, I see it. What is it? So anyway, after this, after they hear this continental pilot reacting to it, an unfamiliar voice from the Los Angeles Flight Control Center comes on the line and starts asking her questions. And she said it was a totally different person. And she decided she's not going to talk to this guy. She says, uh, uh, you know, she didn't, she didn't want to talk to a total stranger about it. So uh, she and her first officer went back to talking about what had happened. And then, you know, she, they just decided that they were not going to make any kind of report. And they just told this other voice that things were just fine. They had no problem at all. Because of the stigma that's attached to that kind of thing. I mean, it's obvious you don't want to be the kind of pilot who sends in a UFO report. So anyway, they're continuing on their way to San Francisco, and a fighter jet pulls up alongside them. And they have no idea how a fighter jet can get that close, but somehow it managed to do it. And, and at some point, someone set up a flare right off their right wing. So they're getting all this, this hostile, um, earthly hostile response uh, to, to their curiosity. And anyway, so when they land in San Francisco, she and her, her first officer are so frightened that they call their respective spouses and, and tell them to uh, you know, lock the doors, don't answer the phone, because they were really scared of some kind of, you know, reprisal happened. They land in San Francisco, and that's essentially the end of the story. She did not want to be identified, obviously, for, for the same reason that she didn't want to talk to the unfamiliar voice out of Los Angeles. But, but uh, uh, Dr. Lynn did put me onto this person. She gave us an interview, and I agree with Dr. Lynn completely, but it's a fascinating story. And that, that's another thing I may interject, and, and thank you for bringing the point up. Um, you know, I, I don't know if the, the listeners know that I stayed anonymous. I stayed anonymous for seven years uh, after the mass sighting, even though I had a very close sighting two years prior to that, not only because of the ridicule and criticism and, and ostracizing that one gets when, when one comes forward with these things, but I had such compelling photographic documentation that, and I saw it up close and personal, and uh, no matter where I went, and I went to extreme lengths to have a logical explanation um, for, for what I had witnessed and photographed, and, and to today, um, just my investigation alone, I went to the University of Arizona Optical Sciences Department, Consciousness Study Department, ASU Geology and Mathematics, Anthropology Department, Astronomy Department, as well as the Brooks Institute of Photography, and across the board, no one could give an explanation for these phenomena. If anything, everyone was, was quite fascinated by it. And, and what, in, what became clear to, to myself uh, in this investigation, not only that this has been happening for many, many centuries, there's a history to this, it's happening worldwide, it's, it's happening uh, almost daily now. People are, are finding out about it because of the Internet um, and the technology. But what was really impactful is that in my pictures, and the data speaks for itself, and anyone that wants to get on my website, phoenixlights.net can take a peek at some of the uh, photographic evidence here. From my pictures, two years prior to the mass sighting and two months before the mass sighting, uh, I saw the same exact formation, the mile-wide formation in the same
same exact location and have pictures of that fact. When we had our clothes plating, the same information was in the same location in the background. Two months before the mass sighting, which was confirmed the next morning because it was so unnerving to see this thing hovering uh, above the city, uh, I called around and found air traffic controllers that not only saw it at the same time, it was in restricted airspace, it did not show up on radar, and in their own words, there were six points of light that seemed to be attached to something, but they couldn't quite see what it was attached to, moving slowly in tandem behind South Mountain. So just the point that Dr. Bruce McAdee, uh went on the sighting a year later um, came up with the fact that this, that this formation was behind the mountain, so it must be flares, you know, really doesn't make sense because the air traffic controllers saw it in restricted airspace moving behind South Mountain. So just because it might have gone behind the mountain doesn't mean it's not an unknown um, or that it is definitely flares. So there's always been a big question mark. And, and from my vantage point, and we just had another sighting here on February 6th, it has never been reenacted. And if it is military, why not reenact it? And I have three instances where it proves that the, if whoever did this did it in the same location three times. And I also have pictures after the, the mass sighting uh, in the same area as well. But um, the data speaks for itself. And, and that's, that's what's so curious and really prompted me after the investigation and ending up with a 750-page journal four years later to say, well, you know, uh, I'm an educator. I've been educating the community for 30 years on vital health issues. Maybe it's time to, to educate the, the community on this vital, the reality of this vital issue as well. So I finally okay. came forward three years ago. So here's a question. Based on the, um, the testimony of that airline pilot, that we know that there was discussion in the air traffic controller realm about what was going on. You had multiple pilots reporting this thing. You know, we had a military response. Question is, has anybody attempted to use the Freedom of Information Act to loosen up some of these some of these logs? You would presume that there'd be some stuff in the air traffic control realm, um, some logs and or radar tapes. That was a very good question, and people tried to do that, and by the time they did, everything was gone. Hmm. We want to hear from you. If you comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and Dana. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Let me tell our listeners you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. And we're talking to Dr. Lynn, Dr. Lynn Kitai. She is the author of The Phoenix Lights, and she's had a long acquaintanceship with this particular phenomenon as a result. And also freelance writer Sean Castile, who has an article on The Phoenix Lights coming out in the March issue of UFO Magazine. David, you want to continue with this? This is not something we haven't heard before, where people attempt to dig up 
some sort of official documentation and uh, basically hit a brick wall. And this is something we hear all the time. It's obviously very, very frustrating. Along those lines, you've got thousands of people who saw this. Is there any chance there were any amateur astronomers who had some decent telescopes attached to tripods? I mean, one of the obvious problems in trying to shoot something at night is that you've got no light, especially given that you had this major astronomical event going on, which was why people were out looking at the sky anyway. Has anybody uncovered any decent tripod shot stills of this thing, again, given that people were out uh, shooting a comet? Well, I, like I said, some people tried, but they didn't turn out. Mm. And I've even had calls from people who say that they, in my medical office, who have said that they have pictures, and when I've tried to get a hold of them, I just can't reach them. So I don't know what that's about. But, but the fact is that, uh, you know, I do have pictures, and, and they're the same phenomena uh, in the same location. And they're 35 millimeter, which is really much better than digital um, oh, sure. as far as analysis goes. So we were able to, and I, and I have to say in Jim Delatosa's behalf, um, when I finally did come to him uh, a week after uh, the mass sighting, once, once thousands of people had seen what I had been seeing, and then I'm learning on television that, that this is happening worldwide and that there's a, an expert right here in Tempe near ASU, which was the first I heard about it. I had no idea. I had no interest or knowledge in the topic and had no idea this was happening worldwide. That really blew me away. And here I had all these pictures and, and, and footage and uh, felt that somebody of credence had to take a look at them. And when I finally did meet with, with Jim, I, I asked him, please, because I didn't know what we were dealing with. And, and, you know, whether it was a hoax or military or whatever, I wanted to do my homework before I could share uh, and educate others. I had to educate myself. I, until I came forward, he never said a word. And he got plastered. I mean, he people were really accusing him uh, of falsehood because, in their minds, he was just analyzing video, which is extremely difficult to do, and they look very different in the video. They look white, and they flicker, and they're much smaller in the video. Right. But he had my 35 millimeters in hand and never told a soul about them. So, you know, in that behalf, I am very, very grateful to him that, that he kept it anonymous until I was ready mm -hmm. to come forward. Um, but the fact is, there is 35 millimeter uh, documentation of, of the identical uh, phenomena that has been uh, analyzed by, by him and by the Brooks Institute of Photography and, and down at the University of Arizona uh, Optical Sciences Department, and, and as you mentioned at the beginning, Sean, which was which was an excellent answer. I mean, we we know what they're not. You know, in, in my estimation, we do not have the technology yet to definitively define what these things are. But just because we don't doesn't mean they're not real. Right. Well, we have to use a process of elimination. Uh, you know, Gene and I have talked about this a lot on the show where we don't know what the phenomenon is. Let's figure out what it isn't and strip that away so we can get closer, you know, take the noise away and get closer to the signal. Now, I do want to say one other thing, though, uh, Dr. Lynn, and you might not like this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. I think one of the reasons people might have expressed issues with Mr. Delatoso is that he has been involved in some well-known hoaxes. So, you know, using Dr. Maccabee's name is a very valid thing. Dr. Maccabee is probably the most respected um, image analyst in this field. Um, Mr. Delatoso has a bit more of an issue with his reputation. So, I think it's important to say that because on the Paracast, we have specifically um, or revealed a hoax that Mr. Delatoso was deeply involved in. So, that's part of the problem 
problem in this field, of course, is that once somebody gains a certain reputation, it's really hard to undo that reputation. On the other hand, when Dr. McAbee makes a statement about something, people tend to respect what he says because he has a very good track record. So that's part of the problem, of course. When we talk about this topic, people bring their baggage to the table, and you know that that makes things more difficult. That's completely aside from the fact that you know looking at the evidence, certainly the the not only the photographic evidence, but the the testimony of people who witnessed it that night. You know, when you see something in the sky that's blocking out stars that is a mile to two miles in size, there's no room there for believing that oh, this is even secret military technology. No, we don't have anything that big in the sky. That's a bottom line issue. So well, I think people. Well, especially that it's silent too. That's another thing. Um, yeah. You know, a couple of things. First, firstly, as I, as I mentioned previously, um, for Dr. McAbee and I had a, a long relationship, and we still do. But certainly, uh, you know, he analyzed the pictures as well, and and as I said, presented them as as true unknowns at the uh, Mufon mm-hmm. International Symposium in 1999 in Washington D.C. Um, and I was very grateful that, that he did. I was seeking anyone, you know, Jim Del Toso happened to be here, uh, right. but certainly I went to extreme lengths. I met with the dean of students at the at the uh, Brooks Institute of Photography. I mean, I really went to, to great lengths. It wasn't just Jim Del Toso. He just happened he happened to be here, and, and sure. again. Um, with all due respect, he, he did keep my anonymity, so I'm grateful for that. But, um, but besides that, you, you hit on something really, really important, and that's, that's the testimony of people. Um, you know, they could go to court and put someone in jail or, or, or uh, you know, uh, for life. Um, whereas, you know, the testimony, um, heretofore has been so brushed off and so ridiculed and so snickered at. Um, and, and I think that's really changing now. I think that, that the testimony, particularly, of the witnesses in uh, in Arizona, and it came to the fore uh, five months after the fact. There was no investigation, there was no uh, explanation, and, and it was very frustrating for the witnesses that know that they had seen something so extraordinary glide right over their heads, totally silent. That's really important to say too. This was totally. Mm-hmm totally silent. And as far as the military or government, it was like something happened March 13th. I mean, it was absolutely total denial that anything even happened, which if it was military, is certainly concerning, okay, that they would, they would do this when thousands of people were outside purposely looking up at the sky and then denied that it happened at all. But be, be that as it may, it wasn't until five months after the fact when a USA Today article came out, uh, front page, opened up uh, the story to international scrutiny. We were deluged by media from all over the world. And once they started speaking with the witnesses, it was just so overwhelming to each and every one of them because their stories were so heartfelt and so detailed that they, they too, they said, why isn't there an investigation? Why isn't there an explanation? Something really extraordinary happened throughout the state for many, many hours. And suddenly, a month later, on July 24th, to be exact, um, and I, I know that date because I got a, got a call from um, the uh, head of uh, PR at the uh, Air National Guard. I had tried to do my homework there, too. I had called every military base in the state to see if they knew what it was, and they were more interested in seeing my data than giving an mm-hmm. explanation for it. But yeah. be that as it may, she, she called me up and she said, oh, uh, Dr. Wren, I think we know what those lights were back in March. And I said, you do? And she said, yes, would you believe that nobody ever looked at the log for visiting Air National Guard and the Maryland Air National Guard was in town sending off flares, so that must be what some people saw. Now, you know, that really, I mean, 
I was like stopped in my tracks and I said, well, well, wait a minute, when were they in town? And I was still open to a logical explanation. And she said, well, they were in town March 1st to the 15th. So, and I said, well, so they weren't in town in January. She said, no, 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 no. I said, well, I have pictures, because I never told them what I had. Um, I have pictures that confirmed that the same formation was in the same location uh, January 23rd. It was confirmed the next morning by air traffic control. She said, you never told me that. And then I said, well, besides that, and by then I had educated myself to what uh, flares look like, and they absolutely cannot keep a formation. They drift with the wind. There's, there's billowy smoke trails. They're very haphazard, and they light up their views to let the ones that they said they were using are used to light up the ground, which were none of the characteristics of the unknown. And I said, and you're, you're saying that flares actually went in an equidistant uh, V formation and traveled throughout the state for many hours? Now, uh, watch those, maybe those flares were high on something, and therefore they behaved in an <laughs> irrational way. You know, these flares were designed in the 1960s. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. This is the Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Dr. Lynn herself, Dr. Lynn Kitai, the author of The Phoenix Lights. I guess we can use the subtitle. We are not alone. So who's there? That's maybe another question we have to ask. Also, Sean Castile, who's author of an article about the 10th anniversary of the Phoenix Lights, which comes in the March issue of UFO magazine. Uh, Dr. Lynn, yes. talking about the flares, uh, when I first wrote about you last year, uh, you mm-hmm. also... Which was a wonderful article. Thank you very much. It was just a wonderful well, thank you. article. Thank you. Yeah, but I was going to say, when, when we did the, uh, the piece last year, you also talked about uh, the military attempted publicly to, to duplicate the Phoenix Fire. Right. They, very, they, very good. Thank you for bringing that up. Yes. Uh, and by the way, I didn't finish finish the, the story before. It was July 24th, and I happened to get off the phone with the, with the uh, Air National Guard to call my sister back east to, in Delaware to wish her a happy birthday, and the first thing she said to me, oh, we just saw an announcement that the lights were flares in Phoenix. We hadn't even gotten the announcement here yet. 
How about that? Okay, but anyway, um, yes, uh, after that announcement did come out, uh, many of us, myself included, were totally open. Okay, if the military sent off flares, fine, reenact it, do it again. Um, and that did not happen. Actually, uh, right before the, third, the week before the third anniversary of the mass sighting, uh, the announcement in the paper, across the paper, front page and radio and TV, was that three Air National Guards, Michigan, New York, and California, were coming into town to send off flares to show everybody the Phoenix Lights. Well, hooray. We were all ready and waiting with cameras in hand uh, to see the reenactment. Well, they were supposed to do a two-week run, and by the second day, it was scrapped. It was really a joke. Um, I have to say, they, they tried to make a, a triangle. It was upside down and fell apart immediately. You could see the smoke trails. Um, it was just, uh, you know, it, was, it really confirmed for those of us who had seen the real thing that what they were doing was nothing like what the mass sighting uh, unknowns look like. And to this day, to this day, it has never been reenacted. And again, I have photographs that prove that whoever did it did it more than once, did it twice before, two years before and two months before the mass sighting. So what's that about? Well, yeah, what does that mean ultimately? Uh, it's almost as if whatever was behind this wanted to be noticed, especially if this Absolutely. happened in pretty much the exact same place. Um, that seems really interesting. I'd like to to go back for a minute, though, to something that was said about this airline pilot that reported this thing to air traffic control, and then all of a sudden finds a jet fighter on its side, you know, at, at its side, that's right. shooting off a flare. Now, that's very interesting. Um, did anybody who witnessed the object over Phoenix note at any time any jet fighters trying to approach this thing? I think it's it's weird that the jet it's fighter happened. would have... Well, it, it seems odd. This happened, actually. Uh, there was a call into... Uh, it's really intriguing and, and fascinating when you just look at the, look at the facts and how this thing unfolded, and I, mm -hmm. I tried to, to put the highlights in the book, and then also we address it in the documentary, but there were uh, a number of witnesses, and also who saw this, who saw jets being sent out to intercept this object as uh -huh. it was traversing right over 7th Avenue and Indian School in the 8 o'clock hour, and there was actually a call for allegedly from a crewman from Luke Air Force Base, okay, who reported to Peter Davenport at the UFO Reporting Center, and he has it all recorded, and it was very detailed with numbers and serial numbers and names and all kinds of good stuff, um, that two jets were sent out to intercept this object or get gun, gun camera film of it, whatever. And as it got close, right over 7th Avenue Indy, just right in the center of Phoenix, it blinked out. And this crewman was actually, uh, he said that he was one of the fellas that tried to help the pilot out of the aircraft who was totally shaken by the incident. So when they got close to this thing, it essentially vanished. It just blinked out. The lights blinked out. I'm wondering, did it? if the lights blinked out, was it still obstructing the stars? Was it still there, but the lights were off? The whole, the whole, supposedly the whole thing blinked out. We, oh. we have reports of this thing blocking out the stars. We have reports from, from people. We have a very credible report from a couple who were realtors. They were out in Carefree, actually uh, in a lot that, was, that had um, mistakes in it for, for uh, building um, homes. And they estimated that this thing was over two miles wide. And uh, they also saw windows and beams at the windows. So we have, you know, we have descriptions like that. We have descriptions, as, as the air traffic controller said, of, of lights that seemed to be attached to something. But, but you couldn't quite see what it was attached to, as if there was a, a force field behind it. And if you look at my second 
second picture in a series of six two months before the mass sighting. It's very telling because what it looks like is, a, is I, I caught this thing head-on turning into a V-shape. Uh, in fact, I sent some of the pictures, Sean, to the UFO magazine. I hope you use the, the second one. The second one in that series shows five across with two underneath it, and many people statewide describe this as a V-shape of five lights with two trailing. So that was the second picture I put in the, in the, in the series of six. But the last picture, it shows this thing had, had like kind of turned around so that the bigger lights, every other one was a bigger light. So it, it looks like the, the one arm, uh, the closer arm were the, were the bigger lights, and the smaller lights in between was the further away arm. Thus, there was a force field in between these things. So could, could this thing change? Could it morph from a force field to a, to a real craft? Or were there many things happening throughout the state? We don't know that. But there was definitely a parade uh, because different people did see different things uh, throughout that time period. Quick question. Were there any reports of animals acting up? Were there dogs barking? Were people finding that their animals were getting restless? Was there anything like that in any of the um, witness testimony? The only thing that I can, I can share on that behalf is when we had the closed sighting, and uh, this was in fe- February 6, 1995, incidentally, the, the, the most recent sighting here was also February 6, the, the eve of my birthday. My husband called, us, uh, called me to the window of our bedroom, uh, and we were pretty high on the mountain in Paradise Valley and were nestled in the mountains in a gated community. There's no way, no way underlined that this could have been military. And he, he actually saw them first. There were three amber orbs in a triangle formation, one on top and two closely aligned underneath, about 50, 75 feet off the ground. And as we watched, and I knew if I didn't get a picture of it, and I really took a mental picture of it, uh, initially there were, there were three objects, distinct objects, the color within each orb, and I call them an orb because the light did not extend outside the edge. Um, it was very smooth and, and it didn't glare at all. Every other light out there glared. It was very uniform amber color throughout. And uh, again, I, I knew if I didn't get a picture of this, nobody was going to believe it. And I go running to the closet to get my 35 millimeter and my husband calls me back. He says, get over here quick. One of them is disappearing. And as we watched, the top orb without budging, without budging, started to dim as if on a dimmer switch, uh, as if it was going somewhere, but it didn't move anywhere. And it just seemed that it was still there after it disappeared. And I quickly got out on the balcony. And to answer your question, uh, after I clicked the picture of the two bottom orbs, um, I noticed an eerie, eerie silence as if time had stopped. There wasn't a sound. There wasn't a, and we have German Shepherd, a guard dog. There wasn't a sound. There wasn't a bark. Uh, it was very, very eerie. And the next thing I remember, the left bottom orb started to disappear. And um, I quickly shot a picture of that. But it did feel that there was an intelligent presence there watching. As I was really intently looking at these two bottom orbs, it seemed that something was, was looking back. I, I, it took me a long time to admit that to anyone over two years. But going through my head at, at that moment was, who are you? What are you? Do you know that I'm here? I'd love to meet you. And then the left bottom orb started to disappear. So I always go back to that close sighting, no matter what anybody else, you know, has to say about it. I saw them up close and personal. And that once that happens to you, it is just so ingrained in your psyche that it's something that you'll never forget. And, and, and it's just it happened yesterday. And I did get pictures of it. So I can talk about it. When I, What's really interesting is 
that the same information was in the background at the same time that the closed sighting was happening. And we do have reports from a couple of witnesses, uh, at least, that these orbs actually detached uh, at one point from the main object, went out into the environment, and redocked with that object during the mass sighting as well. So is that what happened in 1995? We can only speculate, but um, that's possible. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we're talking to Dr. Lynn herself, Dr. Lynn Kitai, author of The Phoenix Lights, and Sean Castile, who wrote a book on the 10th anniversary of The Phoenix Lights for the March issue of UFO magazine. Sean, you were going to jump in there and ask a question or make a comment. Go ahead. I was going to say, Dr. Lynn, I'd like to hear you talk about the, the personal uh, transformations that so many people have experienced. So many of the witnesses felt their lives were changed after seeing the lights. Mm-hmm. That really, really pointed poignant part of all this and, and one of the main reasons I did come forward um, I stayed anonymous for seven years I really didn't want to come forward I let my pictures and, and photographs speak for, the, speak for themselves but once it became evident after I had a 750 page journal of incredible data incredible interesting uh, compelling uh, quotes and uh, history of all this and multiple sightings worldwide um, it became evident that it was just too important not to share and um, one of the uh, really really poignant points of all this is when I started interviewing uh, witnesses, a number of witnesses, including myself, had had near-death experiences as children. Uh, I go into this in the, in the book uh, that was reawakened by the mass sighting. And I found that really curious. I thought, geez, could there be uh, a connection between all unexplained phenomena, be they near-death experience, out-of-body experience, unexplained aerial phenomena that have a mystical light associated with the experience? And lo and behold, again, when I started looking and I started finding there is so much data out there, and I was finding studies being done at university level, the Omega Project by Dr. Kenneth Ring at uh, University of Connecticut and, and a number of other very, very uh, professional um, university-based studies that really formulated a, a very substantial scientific base for the connection between all unexplained phenomena. I started calling them ups and up, uh, not only because the experience, the unexplained experience is very similar, but the after effect, the awakening that happens to, to someone that truly experiences an up, uh, an unexplained phenomena, the, the connectedness to the universe, to the earth, to each other, is so profound and so positive. It really transforms people uh, and wakes them up, uh, not only to the fact that we're not alone in the universe, but they, to what we're doing to ourselves and to our planet before it's too late. And I think that's the major message here that's happening worldwide by these visitations and by these unexplained experiences, near-death experiences, uh, come back with the same message, uh, wake up before you destroy your, your world. And if that's not important to come forward, I don't know what it is. I'd like to ask you a question about what effect this has had on you in terms of your career. Now, you've, you've come forward with this, your name and your face are associated with this. How has this impacted your practice? I'm curious. Actually, I, I actually pushed my whole professional medical career aside for four years to try to find a logical source and meaning for what I witnessed mm -hmm. and photographed. And uh, when I did end up with the with 
was the 750-page journal. I then had to decide if I was going to come forward. And, again, I, I really didn't want to. I, I just didn't want to get involved with the topic, and yet it's so compelling and so important. And I did go back to a wonderful position at the Arizona Heart Institute as the chief clinical consultant of the Wellness and Imaging Center there um, while I teared down the book and decided what I was going to do with it. And uh, inevitably, because my life's work, I, I, produce, I have been producing video and workbook curriculums on vital health issues for about 30 years. They're being distributed by Discovery Education Worldwide uh, currently. And I really felt obliged to do the same uh, for this. And I, and I have to say that once I did come forward with the book, uh, now it's a giant step. I mean, I'm, I, uh, you know, to this day, I am a great risk from both my personal and professional careers. But I have to say that it's, it's, I, I've been blessed. I, I really feel very fortunate that people appreciate the work that's gone into this. The book is in its third print. It really covers the whole gamut and and uh, and shares and helps other people transform as well. What you were asking, Sean, many people have been touched by the book, which really is so gratifying uh, that through my own transformation, because I was a healthy skeptic. One must must be when you're in the medical profession. You must be open to things. But I was still a healthy skeptic to one that realizes that we're not alone, that, that we're at a precipice here where there's an awakening, a change of consciousness happening, um, whether it's through through ourselves or through seeing or experiencing these events um, that's really moving us forward, hopefully, um, in our own evolution to wake us up to the fact that we're not alone in the universe. I mean, look at the facts. The Hubble telescope has just told us in the last 10 years or so that the, our galaxy, our one Milky Way galaxy that has 400 billion stars in it, okay, and who knows how many more are out there, is 10 to 14 billion years old. Our solar system is a very young solar system. It's only four to six billion years old. There are scientists now postulating that there could be intelligent entities out there billions of years ahead of us. Think about that, billions of years ahead of us. And when we look at, look at the fact that it took 17 centuries, 17 centuries before the advent of the microscope for human beings to realize that there are zillions of tiny microorganisms, living entities all around us, even in our bodies. And, and just recently, in the past two years, we learned that electromagnetic energies are around every living cell that help us develop the MRI, the magnetic resonance imaging machines to detect disease non-invasively. How wonderful. Well, just because we can't see these tiny living organisms or electromagnetic energies or radio waves or gamma rays, it doesn't mean they're not real. We just don't have the technology yet to definitively define them. And I've never said what these things are, only that they are. But it's time we get it out in the open and we start addressing it and accepting it and studying it and, and moving forward in our sure. evolution. Well, it's pretty clear that human beings, just in terms of what we can perceive of the electromagnetic spectrum, it's a tiny sliver. You start to realize that, yeah, that what we perceive as reality, the portion of visible light that we can perceive is such a tiny sliver of reality that it really is at the exclusion of the majority of reality. And there's been some very interesting footage that surface of the Mexican Air Force that's captured UFOs in the infrared spectrum in mass. So you don't have to move very far away from the visible
people part of the electromagnetic spectrum to find a lot of activity. Any, any human being that thinks that it really knows the nature of the universe is obviously, um, what's the term here, delusional. <laughs> we understand so very little. Um, I don't know that at this point anybody really believes that we're alone in the universe. It's pretty clear that there's such a vast array of matter out there. There are so many galaxies. The human mind really can't even comprehend the number of stars in our one galaxy, and we're just one galaxy. What is important to remember, though, here, and this is a topic we talk about a lot on the Paracast, is that at this point, with all of this phenomenon, we don't really know what the source of it is. We could be talking about interplanetary beings. We could be talking about interdimensional beings. We could be talking about beings that have been here for millions of years, a civilization that lives alongside humans, and we don't even know they're here, or some combination of the above. When we get into this topic, people very often take a stance of, it's aliens. Well, we don't really know that. We, we, we're not sure, but here's what we know. When you see something that's two miles across the sky, chances are it's not one of ours. That's what we do know. You know, Bud Hopkins once talked to me about what you're talking about, about uh, whether we're dealing with uh, extra-dimensional alien, whatever whatever different labels we apply to it. Mm -hmm. He told me, ultimately, that's not important. What you have to do is pick it up from the human end of it. How is it affecting us? How is it affecting people? And that, that's, that's the only thing we can really measure or even begin to. Sure. And, and by the way, if I can jump in here, I mean, everyone comes from a different background, from a different upbringing, from a different belief system, from a different what I call a reality cube. And there are some people that are just not going to be able to cope with this. Uh, they're going to be in total denial, or they, they'll try to feed into a logical explanation like flares, and that's okay. That's okay. Everyone in their own time, as a physician, I really have become even more aware of the fact that, that each individual is going to react to these experiences and to the knowledge of these experiences um, differently. And uh, there will be people that are, that are totally open and will embrace it and and learn and just want to learn more and more and more about it, as I did. Um, and there will be others that will just close themselves off to that energy, which is their choice. This is America, and, and we do have free will as human beings. Um, but it's out there if you if you really want to learn about it. And that's why I came forward, to educate people if they care to learn about it. Uh, and it, and it's so fascinating just in, a, in, a, in and of itself, just, just the, the intriguing uh, information when you look at quotes from presidents and pilots, uh, Dr. Richard Hayes. Uh, has been studying these phenomena since World War II, the Foo Fighters. Uh, the, these amber ores were traveling around um, the different airplanes from the different sides, and each side thought the other side had this advanced technology, and it wasn't until after World War II that, that each side realized that we don't have this technology. <laughs> yes. um, and that's, that's just one example of many where uh, these phenomena have been around for a long, long time, since human documentation began. You are about to enter another dimension, a dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind, a journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies in Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. 
My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with James and David Bianney. You never know what's going to happen next. I've got to interrupt Dr. Lynn and tell our listeners sure. you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. And we're talking to Dr. Lynn Kitai, author of The Phoenix Lights. And if you go to phoenixlights.net, that's phoenixlights.net, you learn more. And I suppose you get a copy of the book there or from your favorite book reseller. And we're also talking to Sean Castile, who wrote an article for the March issue of UFO magazine about the 10th anniversary of The Phoenix Lights. And by the way, uh, Gene, we have a number of events coming up. I've started to uh, share a lot more than I've ever shared before uh, concerning photographs and, and other data that I've accumulated over the last 10 years. Um, and uh, we'll be presenting that at, at a number of venues in the in the Phoenix area. Uh, if anybody cares to look at the website, thephoenixlights.net, uh, on the events awards page, they'll um, also notice that we're so proud that our documentary has won over a dozen international National Film Festival Awards, which really is a first. I mean, not only for a film to win so many awards, but uh, in the genre, to have the film community uh, and the uh, the media uh, here in the Phoenix area really embrace what's happened here and, and want to celebrate the 10th anniversary. It's very exciting. Which documentary is this now? Tell our listeners. This is a, this is a Phoenix Lights documentary. The Phoenix Lights, We Are Not Alone documentary. Uh, after the book came out in 2004, I was still working at the Arizona Heart Institute uh, as a chief clinical consultant of the Wellness and Imaging Center there and working seven to seven. I was working full-time doing radio programs like this into the night and uh, doing Barnes & Noble and Borders book presentations on the weekends. And I was approached by a filmmaker from California whose parents actually live here. And he was very persistent. Uh, He was entranced by the entire thing and wanted to do a documentary. And and I have to say, I mean, because I've been working on video and workbook curriculums for 30 years, I, I wanted to as well, but I just didn't have the time. I was invited to speak at a middle school. This really did it for me. Kind of a sign for me because I, I walked into it at the last period of the day with over 200 students and parents and teachers and you could hear a pin drop. The teachers and parents mm-hmm. couldn't believe it. These kids thirst for this knowledge and as soon as I asked, does anybody believe we're alone in the universe? Not one hand went up. When I said, do you believe we are not alone in the universe? Every hand went up and after my presentation, they wouldn't cough, stop clapping and they had wonderful, wonderful questions, and they were just so fascinated. And, and I realized that there really is a chunk of history missing from our history book. And at that point, I said, you know what? I have to do this documentary. There has to be a, a book that people can pick up to read, but also a visual of the, of the witnesses and the, the wonderful professors that I worked with and, and military and birds in the field as well, so that people can see it firsthand. And we started producing the documentary uh, the summer of 05, and by June, 
it was quite evident to me that uh, I couldn't do everything, and I had to make a decision, and I decided to, to go full steam ahead, and uh, we came out with the uh, documentary, and ever since March uh, of, of 05, I haven't looked back. We've just been steamrolling. I mean, it's, it's very exciting. It's very fulfilling, and I, you know, to me, it's, it's just getting the information out there, and hopefully people will take a look at it, and it's just really overwhelming to me, the response that we've gotten from both the book and the documentary, and uh, uh, we'll, be, we'll be screening the documentary here in Phoenix several times uh, during March, and uh, again, I'll be presenting, and that's the other thing, it's now getting into the schools, I'll be presenting at, a, at Arizona State University, as well as uh, Paris Valley Community College, um, that's my passion, uh, is youth and, and young people, and getting this information into the uh, the realm of, of education, and uh, and that's happening now, which is very, very exciting, and, and I hope it continues. I'm along for the ride. <laughs> Excellent. You had mentioned before, why isn't anybody out with a telescope? Many people are. There are even my neighbors underneath us. Um, <laughs> when, the, when the lights came back a year later, uh, I alerted them, and they got their telescope out there. And what people notice when they, when they see these orbs is that they're like spinning balls of energy. And if you look on the, on the web for the, for the picture that was captured by this colonel, this Air Force colonel, just recently, January 9th, and if you uh, look at the, uh, I can I can get the you know, the website if you'd like uh, later. But, great. Um, if you look at that picture, it's identical to what we saw. Hey, and I gotta this, tell you what, Doctor Lynn, we're out of time. I'm sorry to say. I wish we could do another hour, and I hope that we will in the near future. And we hope that you'll stay in touch with us because we enjoyed meeting you. I enjoyed meeting you today, as a matter of fact, when before we did the show and we had a brief chat in person, and we found many areas of common interest and the book is very well done and I wish you continued success with it. Once again, we've been talking to Dr. Lynn Kitai, author of The Phoenix Lights, and of course our old friend Sean Castile, who is the author of an article about the 10th anniversary of The Phoenix Lights for UFO Magazine. Sean, thanks for joining us once again. Great to be here. And Dr. Lynn, so great to meet you. Thank you. You too. And everybody, come join the celebration. Thanks, folks. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.